Well, a few, a few weeks ago, I know we had a couple weeks off there with some other things that were planned, but a few weeks ago we launched a series which we entitled Dollars and Cents, A Biblical Approach to Finances. And over the course of this series, we've been addressing uh, several themes that relate to money that are found in the Scriptures. And uh, we've been addressing them because we believe they, these themes will help us as followers of Jesus to honor Him uh, with our attitudes and also with our actions concerning money. And so our theme along the way has been, it's only when our financial priorities align with kingdom priorities will we handle our finances in a way that declares that Jesus is the Lord of our lives. And so we've observed during this series, and we've said a, a few times, that giving is primarily not about money. God doesn't need our money. We need the experience, and we need to experience the life-changing power of giving, of trust, of faith, of lordship, more than God needs our money. When there's a problem in our finances, when there's a problem in our giving, it's a sign that there are greater problems that are much deeper below the surface. Problems like greed or mistrust, fear, selfishness, mismanagement. And so we've been exploring these themes over the last few weeks. And we've looked, the first week we looked at the Lordship theme. The second week we talked about generosity. In the third week, Pastor Mark talked to us about the good life versus the God life. Then the last time we talked about honesty and today, I want to talk about greed. Now, I want to share this video clip with you, and I have shared it with you before, but it's one of my favorite, and I think it's just so simple yet so profound, and I want to share it with you this morning. Oh, I just can't get these numbers to add up. It's like we're never going to get out of this hole. Credit card debt, does it ever end? <laughs> Maybe I can help. We sure could use it. We've tried debt consolidation companies. We've even taken out loans to help make payments. Well, you're not the only ones. Did you know millions of Americans live with debt they cannot control? That's why I developed this unique new program for managing your debt. It's called Don't Buy Stuff You Cannot Afford. Oh, let me see that. If you don't have any money, you should not buy anything. Hmm, sounds interesting. Sounds confusing. I don't know, honey. This makes a lot of sense. There's a whole section here on how to buy expensive things using money you save. Give me that. And where would you get this saved money? I tell you where and how in Chapter 3. Okay, but what if I want something but I don't have any money? You don't buy it. Well, let's say I don't have enough money to buy something. Should I buy it anyway? No. Now I'm really confused. It's a little confusing at first. Well, what if you have the money? Can you buy something? Yes. Now take the money away. Same story? Nope. You shouldn't buy stuff when you don't have the money. I think I got it. I buy something I want and then hope that I can pay for it, right? No. You make sure you have money, then you buy it. Oh, then you buy it. But shouldn't you buy it before you have the money? No. Why not? It's in the book. It's only one page long. 
The advice is priceless and the book is free. Wow, I like the sound of that. Yeah, we can put it on our credit card. <laughs> so get out of debt now. Write for your free copy of Don't Buy Stuff You Cannot Afford. And if you order now, you'll also receive Seriously. If you don't have the money, don't buy it. Along with a 12-month subscription to Stop Buying Stuff magazine. So order today. I seriously have this conversation with my children at least once every three days. At least once every three days. So as obvious and as basic and common sense as it is, the truth is our world would be very different. North America would be very different if this simple concept could just go deep, deep in our, in our thinking and in our attitudes and in our actions. Today I want to share with you from Luke chapter 12, and uh, we're going to read together verses 13 to 21. So someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbitrator between you? Then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for you for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. In our scripture today, Jesus addresses the greed of a younger brother by sharing a parable. And in dealing with this issue, if you look closely in the text, he exposes three characteristics of greed. And we're going to consider each of these today because I believe that if we understand greed, because most of us will probably say, well, I'm not greedy. If we understand greed, we'll have a greater chance of avoiding greed because there's probably more greed in our lives than we realize. The first thing Jesus teaches here is that greed is motivating. Jesus is traveling towards Jerusalem. <clears throat> in Luke chapter 9, it says he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He's on his way to the cross. He's on his way to die. And large crowds are building as he's traveling. The further he moves along, the closer he gets to Jerusalem, the larger the crowds are becoming. And they're traveling along with him. At one particular moment, someone in the crowd steps out and requests that Jesus help him with a family problem. And the man is the younger of two brothers. Now, culturally, the older brother would be the executor of his father's estate, and he would receive a larger portion. And so the math is very simple in biblical times for inheritance. If there are two brothers, two sons, then the inheritance is divided into three. The younger gets one, the older gets two. If there are five sons, it's divided into six. They all get one, but the older gets two. The older brother, the older son, 
the executor of the will always got twice as much as the other sons received. The women, the girls, they basically got nothing. The man refers to Jesus as a teacher or a rabbi. And rabbis were often consulted for advice on family issues. And this, of course, is deemed a family issue. And Jesus is expected to provide wisdom and counseling and judgment for this particular scenario. Now, there's one of two things that could be happening in this family. The first option would be that the older brother who controlled the estate was holding back the younger brother's share unfairly. And so he's saying to Jesus, listen, can you get my brother to give me what's rightfully mine? The second scenario is that the younger brother wants Jesus to break with tradition and to tell the older brother to not divide the inheritance into three, but rather just divide it equally into two equal portions that they both can share. Now, when you look at the text, I would suggest that it's the latter scenario that's unfolding here, that the younger brother is wanting the same amount as the older brother. If it had been the first scenario, he wouldn't go to a rabbi for mediation. He would have just gone to the authorities because this would have been a legal issue. This is not a a moral family issue. It would have been a legal issue. And if he had gone to the authorities, they would have immediately intervened on his behalf and made sure that he got what was rightfully his. But he didn't go to the authorities. He came to Jesus. And so I believe that he most likely wants Jesus to, to make the older brother divide the inheritance equally. He says, tell my brother. The purpose is to get more of the father's inheritance than what was owing to him, more than what he is entitled to. You see, the motivation of greed is more. It's more. And what the, what the, what the man was, was doing here is he's trying to, to say, you know what, what I am due is not satisfying. It's not enough. Jesus, I want more. I know what culture says. I know what my father intended. I know what the rules are, but I want more. In fact, he's willing to even risk being humiliated publicly. He's in this crowd, and everyone in this crowd understands how this works. They understand the culture. They understand what what should be happening. They're familiar with these practices in terms of inheritance. But he doesn't care. He's risking his reputation because he wants more. He's motivated by greed, and he wants more. And Jesus refuses to get involved in this family dispute because instantly he could see that the problem here wasn't a division of funds. The problem here was an issue in this man's heart, and the issue was greed. And so Jesus decided that he would address the issue of greed, which is not what the man was asking for. He just wants his money, and Jesus says, no, there's a bigger problem here. I want to talk about that. Now, folks, if we were to be honest this morning, we all struggle with human nature, I mean, nobody here is perfect, right? If you think you're perfect, that's your imperfection. 
We all struggle with human nature. You know, all you have to do is drive on the highway and you realize how sinful and flawed you are when those other people do all those terrible things that make you angry. We struggle with human nature. We look at others and we see what others have. And we're bombarded all around us with messages from culture that are telling us what we should have, what's in, what we're entitled to, what we should be striving for. And the result of that is often we become very motivated to have and to acquire what other people have and what we are led to believe that we should have. And we fall into that trap. We go to visit a friend or a family member that just moved into a new house. It's not lived in yet. There's no scratches on the wall. There's no dings off the corner. There, everything is pristine. The tiles still shine. The stove's never been used. And you look around and you're just, it's just such a beautiful home. And you think about your home. And it's banged up and it's lived in and you've raised kids there and you've entertained people there and you're, you know, maybe you're like me, you feel that you shouldn't paint more than once every 20 years because that's a lot of work, you know? Jen thinks different, but I wouldn't agree. Or, you know, your neighbor gets that new car and it's a different smell than yours. There's a smell in yours and you can't find the source. It smells like a dead animal, but you can't find it. But their car has that new car smell. You bought the air freshener, new car smell at Canadian Tire, but it's not working. And you see that car and you're like, and you look at your car and you're just depressed. Or, you know, the iPhone 98 comes out and you're still at five. Don't laugh, I just moved to six. Or the TV, you know. Your TV is not good enough that it makes it all look fake. You want one of those TVs or clothes or your friend or your family or your brother is going on a Mediterranean cruise, just saying. And you think, what? I want that. I want that. I want a nicer house. I want a car that doesn't smell like this. I want to wear nice clothes. I want to go on the Mediterranean cruise. I want a nicer phone. And then we start to feel sorry for ourselves a little bit, right? Because, you know, they have what we don't. They have what we want. And we might even begin to justify why we need it or deserve it. We start thinking and saying things like, well, it's not fair. And I work really hard. And why shouldn't I have what everybody else has? I, I deserve it. Folks, the truth is much of our spending and acquiring and our focus is not based on genuine need or on reliability. You know what? This is a decision based on reliability or on good values or, or what is sufficient. That's enough. No. Much of our spending and acquiring and focus in North American culture is based on what culture tells us that we should want and what we should have, what others have that we want too. And so the truth is, many of us center even our value, our worth, our happiness, our fulfillment 
in what we can acquire and accomplish. And the result is we find ourselves working way too much. We find ourselves neglecting our families in the process. We find ourselves incurring overwhelming debt. And we're left with very little time, very little energy, very little resources left for what really matters in this world. Greed is motivating. But unfortunately, it motivates us often towards the wrong things. Second thing Jesus shows us here is that greed is selfish. Jesus turned his attention to the whole crowd. This is a valuable teaching moment. It's between Jesus and the man. The man has made it public, and Jesus recognizes that an incredible teaching moment has presented itself, and I'm going to make the most of this moment. And so he began with a warning. He says, watch out. Watch out. Be on your guard. Be careful against all kinds of greed because life is more than things. Life is more than things. Jesus understood how incredibly powerful and debilitating greed can be. And he wants to make sure that they understand the effect of greed. Now, the word greed here means an unquenchable thirst for getting more of more of something we think we need in order to be truly satisfied. Greed's desire is primarily possessions because possessions are equated with the good life, with success, with fulfillment, with happiness. And so Jesus told a story to illustrate his point. It's the parable of the rich fool. The man in the story is successful. He had good soil. He produced an abundant crop. And his success has left him with a dilemma. There's no room to store his additional harvest. There's nowhere to store it. Now, it's important to note that in this story, Jesus did not address the fact that the man had wealth. The fact that he was wealthy was not a problem. Jesus did not address the manner in which he acquired the wealth. The man didn't do anything wrong in earning all of this. Nothing wrong with his process. There was no problem with the fact that the man had success in business. Jesus is not addressing that. The issue that Jesus addressed was what the man chose to do with his newfound success. Jesus addressed the fact that the man is greedy. And his greed is demonstrated by his selfishness. The man says the word I or I'll six times in this short story. He's totally preoccupied with himself. He's totally preoccupied with his possessions and his newfound abundance. And from the man's point of view, the purpose of, this, of his possessions is self-indulgence. What can my success do for me? I earned it, I own it, I deserve it, I owe it to myself to use it for me. The purpose of his existing barns was to hold his harvest. It was a warehouse. He would sell, he would eat off of it himself, but he would sell out of his barns to make the money that he would need. With increased success in this greater harvest, 
he's going to need a larger place to store it all up. And so his plan is to tear down his smaller barns and build bigger ones. Because his goal is to increase his capacity to store up his success. When the good life is defined by possessions, then the more you have, the happier you're going to be. And so he needed to create a way to keep his success for himself because his increase in possessions would increase his security in the future. And so the result is he's making plans for the easy life. He's making plans to live off his wealth, to eat, drink, and be merry. Life is going to be a party from this moment on. He has focused his life on storing up earthly treasure, but not considering eternal treasure. His possessions gave him a sense of control, a sense of power, comfort. He felt he had control over his life. His success was all about him. Now, according to Jesus, life is more than things. Life is more than things. Sometimes it takes a long time to learn that lesson. And like Jesus warning those that are, were listening, we need to be on our guard. We need to be mindful. We need to be paying attention. We need to be focused on what truly matters because we can easily shift our focus and get caught up in what's happening around us in acquiring and accumulating more of what we think will bring us happiness, fulfillment, and purpose, when in fact we're headed for disappointment and dissatisfaction and purposelessness and emptiness. And we have to be careful. Because the good life is not money and houses and cars and trips. The good life is serving Jesus. The good life is building God's kingdom. The good life is changing lives. It's changing our world. There's nothing wrong with being successful. There's nothing wrong with earning a lot. There's nothing wrong with being wealthy. But the point is what we choose to do with our success. That's where it gets tricky. Is it self centered or is it kingdom centered is it about me or is it about others folks we have to be cautious about entitlement and if there was ever a characteristic that branded our culture today is this is a culture of entitlement a culture of entitlement and, the, and, and we understand as followers of Jesus that we are conduits we are pipes that God's love and His mercy and His compassion and His provision flows through to a broken world, to a sinful world. God blesses us, yes, but He blesses us so we can touch the lives of others and be used by Him to do His work. It's not so we can hoard it up for ourselves. Now, some of us have clogged pipes. If you don't take anything away today, just go home and say, what did pastor talk about? I don't know, something about we got clogged pipes. <laughs> we do. 
Because the abundance in our lives comes from God. And what we do with it is very, very important. The man in this story didn't need bigger barns. He needed a bigger vision. He needed an enlarged generosity. He needed an awareness of how now can I use this abundance to do something of significance in this world. And often, you know, we get these increases in finances. And I mean, I just remember that so much as a young pastor and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm raising kids. I mean, you know what it's like, right? You get married, but you can't afford to get married. I mean, who waits so they can afford it before they get married? If they did, well, maybe that's why most people aren't marrying until in their 30s these days, if at all. And having kids, I mean, who could afford kids when you had them? You just had them <laughs> and you figured it out. And so, you know, all of a sudden in those moments of raising kids and trying to keep a family afloat and all these little, these little amounts would come in, right? You know, maybe you'd get that little increase in pay at the end of the year, theoretically, and you sit back and go, we have 12 more dollars. Hmm. You know, that might just be the increase in the car payment to get that other car. Or all of a sudden, money comes from a source that's unexpected, and you think, oh, what can we do with this? Or your tax return ended up being better than you expected. Or you got a gift that you weren't expecting, right? And, and most of us, when those things happen, we think, what can I do with that now for me, right? I mean, come on, let's, let's be honest. Wow, you know, with this new job, I, I can buy that house we've always wanted. Now I can buy that car, or we can do this, or we can do that. We can do these different things. That's how we're wired most often. But the reality is, in the kingdom, we are blessed to bless. And our thoughts shouldn't always be, hmm, and not that you don't treat yourself or do anything for yourself once in a while, but, you know, our, king sh- our, our thoughts should most often be in the kingdom Wow, this, these new resources have come in. How can, uh, can I allow God to use this to touch the lives of somebody else? That's kingdom thinking. Now, the world thinks that's crazy. In fact, most of Christianity thinks that's crazy. But Jesus' followers don't because it's kingdom first. God blesses us to bless. We're conduits. But some of us have clogged pipes. Greed is foolish. In considering the man's actions and thinking in regard to his success and his wealth, Jesus called him a fool. He said, he's a fool. Now, being called a fool in this culture was a very serious accusation. A fool simply was someone who makes choices as if God doesn't exist and lives as if God hasn't spoken. You just live for yourself. You don't think about God at all. And the Bible says that's a fool. A fool is someone who's short-sighted, sees only what's in front of them, thinks only for themselves without consideration of the future or a bigger picture. A fool is someone who thinks only about themselves, their comfort, their goals, their wants, their pleasures, their, and disregards any responsibility to use their wealth for the benefit of God's work or for less fortunate people. In man's eyes, he was a success to be admired. The others stood back and go, wow, what a successful man. In the eyes of those who observed him, he was envied. Look at that, man, I just wish I could run a business like him. 
I could have the success that he has. He should write a book. You know, the wealthy barber wrote a book. The wealthy farmer should write a book. He should write a book. He should be hosting seminars now and traveling all over. He should start a consulting firm to help other people accomplish the wealth that he has. But that's not how Jesus saw him. Jesus saw him as a fool to be pitied. Yeah, you've had all the success. You have all this means. You have all this money. But your priorities are all wrong. And Jesus is saying, I feel sorry for you. Because the man lived for the here and now. No consideration for eternity. The man worked to satisfy his own wants and neglected to see that his resources could be used for the work of God. The man thought he was a master of his life, that he's in control. And he didn't realize that God owned and commanded his life. He had no power over his future. He just thought he did. He thought he was rich. But in actual fact, he was poor. He worked hard. He accumulated much. But in the end, he had nothing. Nothing. He invested in everything he had in temporary things. And when he died, he left it all behind. Death stripped him bare. Depending on success and wealth and possessions and accumulation for fulfillment in this life, Jesus says, is foolish. There's no eternal value in it. It's foolish. Well, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be a fool. I don't want Jesus to look at me and go, he's a fool. Someone who makes choices. I don't want to be someone who makes choices as if God doesn't exist. I want to be someone whose every decision is rooted in the truth that God does exist. God does exist. You know, we argue with atheists that God exists, but then as Christians, we don't live as if he does. We fight to stop abortion, but we don't look after kids who are starving. If you're going to bring them into this world, you've got to look after them. You know what I'm saying? We live as if God exists, and this God has spoken. I don't want to live my life short-sighted, seeing only what's in front of me, thinking only of myself without consideration of the future or the bigger picture. I don't want to live my life as someone who only thinks about myself, my comfort, my goals, my wants, my pleasure, my, and disregards my responsibility to use what God has given me for the benefit of God's work and others less fortunate. I don't want to live that life. I don't want to live... I don't want to be deemed to be successful in the eyes of anybody else. I want to be successful in the eyes of God. I don't want to live my life for those here and now with no consideration of eternity, working to satisfy my own wants and neglecting to see that my resources could be used for the work of God. I don't want to be that person. I don't want to live my life investing in temporary things. I don't want to live my life depending on success and wealth and possessions and accumulation to get some sense of of fulfillment in this life. As many of you know, I grew up very poor. And when you grow up poor, you live your life being reminded of what you don't have by watching what everybody else has. And so I grew up very poor. I lived every day watching everybody around me have the things and do the things that I could only dream of. And these were not big things. They were basic Simple little things, shoes, a a coat, pants, you know, a pair of jeans, something. 
Just little things. But I was a daydreamer. <laughs> I was a daydreamer. That was my escape from my reality. I was a daydreamer. I wasn't going to focus on and spend my day focusing on what I didn't have. My mind would whisk me away to another place. I lived most of my childhood somewhere else <laughs> in my mind. An imaginary place where I dreamed that of how I could accumulate and have and experience the things that seemed like everybody else around me had. You know, what's really interesting is that when you grow up poor, there's a danger. And the danger is this. You grow up believing that to have any worth, to have any value, to be taken seriously in this life, you have to prove the world was wrong. And you prove they were wrong by being successful. That's what happens. And so accumulating things and being successful is more about proving to everybody else that wrote you off that you're actually worth something, that you actually belong. Because when you grew up in a house like I did, when, when your brothers would quit school and move away to Ontario, the land of plenty, they would call home when they had earned enough to buy the new car or to do the whatever. Why? Because they were trying to prove to everybody back home that they were successful, that they were worth something, that they, they had overcome it, that they actually belonged in this world. But then somewhere along the way, after reaping the faithfulness and blessing of God in our lives, all of a sudden you wake up one day and you realize that your value and your worth and your happiness and your purpose is not rooted in your successes or your failures is not rooted in what you've been able to accomplish or accumulate or acquire. It's rooted in who God created you to be. It's created in who God created you to be. And you live your life surrendered to Him. It's about living life with God's purposes in front of you, understanding and seeing your purpose, your value, your place in this world through his eyes, with, eternal, with eternity's view in mind, not a, a narrow, earthly view. Because to live any other way is foolish. It's foolish. Because you try to live your whole life trying to prove you belong, and at the end of the day, it doesn't make any difference. If you miss who you are, and you miss the priorities of the kingdom of God. I'm going to invite our worship team back. Folks, if we can understand greed, and greed is a big problem in North American culture, and the church is not exempt from it. Greed is a very big problem of living as if God doesn't exist, of being focused on here and now and not on eternal things and acquiring and getting and sacrificing to do that. For what? If we can understand greed, we're going to have a greater chance of avoiding greed. Greed is motivating. It's about more. And it, towards the, it motivates us towards the wrong things. Greed is selfish. Greed's desire is primarily possessions because possessions are equated with the good life, with success, fulfillment, and happiness. We don't need to accumulate more. We don't need to accumulate more. We need 
to give more. We don't need bigger barns. We don't need bigger barns. We need a bigger vision. We don't need greater resources. We need greater faith. Greed is foolish. It's short-sighted. It disregards any responsibility to use wealth for the benefit of God's work and the less fortunate. It invests in temporary things that ignores eternal ramifications. Because it is only when our financial priorities align with kingdom priorities will we handle our finances in a way that declares that Jesus is the Lord of our lives. Greed robs us of that. Would you stand with me this morning? And as our worship team leads us this morning, as our prayer team assembles at the front, we want to be able to pray for those of you this morning that are here, have burdens and needs in your lives. But I want to invite you this morning to not see this as the end of the service, because it isn't. We deliberately plan a short worship time at the end of every service for a purpose. And the purpose is so we can reflect and allow the Spirit of God in an atmosphere of worship where we acknowledge His presence to speak to our hearts and reveal and expose to us, is there something in me, God, that needs to be surrendered, fine-tuned, handed over, changed? So no, we're not done because we need to give God by His Spirit that opportunity this morning. So I want to invite you and encourage you today to make the most of these next few moments. They won't be long, but they can be powerful. And they can be the start of something very significant and life-changing for you. And so while those who are needing prayer are coming, just encourage all of us this morning. Because this is not a one-time thing. This is a decision that we are making every day and moments throughout the day to live in a way that's kingdom-minded. And so as our worship team leads us, would you allow the Spirit of God to do that in your life this morning?